Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands, parks, and national monuments. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, we are sitting down with Colin O'Mara, the head of the National Wildlife Federation. Colin was deep in the weeds in Washington as the Inflation Reduction Act came together, so we asked him to pull back the curtain on how the most significant climate legislation in American history got made. But first, let's do the news. We got some big news out of Colorado since our last episode. Federal and state officials there, including both of the state's U.S. senators, are asking President Biden to use his executive authority to protect 400,000 acres identified in the CORE Act. The CORE Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives, but keeps getting held up in the Senate by lawmakers who are dead set on stopping all conservation legislation from going through. The Colorado officials are asking Biden to use the Antiquities Act to protect Camp Hale and other executive powers like mineral withdrawals and new management plans to protect areas like the Thompson Divide. The good news is Coloradans love the CORE Act. It received almost 90 percent support in our recent Winning the West poll. This is a chance for the president to make a move that will be met with broad public support. He should jump at this invitation to show Coloradans he's listening. And in somewhat related news, the state of Utah is suing the Biden administration over Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Now, this lawsuit did not come as a huge surprise. The state's attorney general has publicly said he was working on a case since President Biden restored the monuments last year. But the state put together a slick promotional video rationalizing their decision to sue. Uh, If you haven't watched the video, it is, as the kids say, pretty cringe. Uh, You already get the feeling the state is just enjoying setting a pile of money on fire and watching it burn. As for the lawsuit itself, Utah no doubt hopes to appeal this thing all the way to the Supreme Court. But even if it gets there overturning or limiting the Antiquities Act would be a massive lift, much bigger, legally speaking, than the Dobbs case that reversed Roe v. Wade. We're talking more than a hundred years of precedent as well as documentation of congressional intent, all of it showing that when Congress passed the Antiquities Act in 1906 and clarified it again 70 years later under FLIPMA, Congress intended to give presidents very broad authority to set aside land for national monuments, and the check on that authority is Congress itself. This all comes down to the property clause of the Constitution. Congress has authority to manage public lands. It delegated some of that authority to the president with the Antiquities Act, which is written as a one-way statute. So if Congress thinks a president abused the Antiquities Act, Congress, and only Congress, can repeal or shrink a national monument. Courts and future presidents simply don't have the authority to second-guess a previous president's judgment under the Antiquities Act. I will get off my soapbox now, but I promise we are going to talk about this a whole lot more after Labor Day. I think it is time for us to call up some law professors. Colin O'Mara is the president of the National Wildlife Federation, America's largest wildlife conservation organization. NWF works to recover wildlife ranging from bison and bighorn sheep to monarch butterflies and native bees. The group also works to improve the management of public lands and make them more accessible. Before he was at NWF, Colin led the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control for five years, up to 2014. Colin, welcome back to the podcast. Very excited to have you here. 
Oh, thanks, Aaron. It's great to be with you. So we asked you here because we wanted to talk to someone who knows the Inflation Reduction Act, top to bottom, and understands what it is that finally made it into this bill. It was a long time coming, looking like there was going to be no climate bill, no climate deal, and then suddenly here it is, and it is remarkably law now. Um, so walk us through the bits of the, the IRA that affect public lands and wildlife. Yeah, and I think I appreciate the uh, kind of the, the tortured nature of the way you describe <laughs> passage, right? Because I, I do feel like it's it's one of these uh, games of like shoots and ladders, right? Like trying to figure out like every possible you know possible venue to get to the end. And like I think on the public land side, um, you know, we had pretty high ambitions um, for you know some pretty significant restoration investments. Um, you know, we were able to get some of those done in the infrastructure package that passed last year. Um, but you know, there's almost six billion dollars for forestry improvements, uh, about a third of which will be on. On federal lands, um, you know, you have you know significant investments in in kind of cleanup um, uh, funds that are available. That again will be available for public lands, and again, this will complement the the investments in abandoned wells and orphan mines that were in the infrastructure package. Um, significant investments in 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 things like wildlife and in and and you know the Bureau of Land Management and the, and the Park Service. And so you know, again, I mean, you're in the in these cases, you're in the hundreds of millions, um, not the you know, multi billions. I mean, the vast majority of the package was on the kind of the tax side related to kind of technologies that reduce emissions. Um, but I, I do think that there's significant, you know, pieces there. The uh, the methane fee that Senator Whitehouse and Senator Carper worked with Senator Manchin on has huge implications on public lands um, in terms of reducing um, reducing methane emissions and beginning to, you know, uh, penalize those that are, are not taking common sense steps to improve, uh, have, to improve their, uh, their emission profile and, you know, things that actually pay for themselves. I mean, it's kind of the insanity of the methane issue, um, that it's an actual waste of, of such a waste of a, of a profitable product. Um, and, and then look, and then I think the other piece that I'm sure we'll talk about is are some of the leasing provisions, but, you know, overall, I mean, I think, you know, public lands, um, you know, did receive, you know, I mean, you're in the orders of the tens of billions, um, kind of all in across all the lines, of enhancements that we'll see in the years ahead. Colin, tell us a little bit more um, about how the bill came together. Do you have any insight into how some of the provisions that you guys are excited about um, actually made it into the final text? Yeah, I mean, then the, we never really stopped, and I think this was the you know the key after after December um, when kind of the well, kind of the first the first pause was in September, and there was another one in December, and then another one in July, um, and the conversations never stopped. And I think one of the things that I'm I'm proud of is that kind of across the community there was good both public work but a lot of good private work um, behind the scenes, very quietly trying to socialize some things. Like I didn't even mention the you know the leasing reform and the and the you know the pieces around. That, that obviously were a huge priority for the Federation and for, for you guys and for so many others. Um, and, you know, that, that work goes back you know, years with Senator Manchin, um, you know, and he's always been a proponent of having more equitable returns on public lands that match, you know, what he's seeing in, in, on private lands in other parts of the country. And so, you know, in every case, it was, it was trying to make the case through, through his lens. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's been undervalued um, in the, in the post um, IRA narrative about, Know how forty-eight Democrats were locked up on all this stuff and would have gone further, um, and at the same time, uh, all the work that was done with Senator Manchin to try to um, share and 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 evolve ideas, you know, like the you know, like some of the the, the, the leasing reforms, like some of the like the methane fee and others that have a slightly more regulatory approach than most. I mean, because ninety percent of ninety-eight percent of the package is, is incentives, right? It's carrots. Um, it, yeah. And but the, the ones that survived, right, um, have direct 
implications on what we're talking about today. And so, you know, I mean, I, I've known Senator Manchin for a long time. I got to know him when he was governor of West Virginia and my governor, Chuck Markell, and he were, were friends lamenting how, you know, folks in Colorado got all the praise for the tourism economies when folks really have better experiences in Delaware and West Virginia between the beaches and the mountains. And so, you know, I've kind of carried that chip on my shoulder ever since and you know, got to know his wife, Gail. And and so we've had a kind of a, a direct, you know, friendship for a long time. We worked closely with him when he became ranker of the of the committee and, you know, testified before him dozens of times and, you know, in his office all the time and talking to him on the phone. And so, you know, we did have that kind of you know, direct relationship where, um, you know, when we're trying to basically, hey, like this makes sense for this reason. I mean, one of the things that folks are shocked by is that, you know, half a billion dollars stayed in for wildlife. You know, we were able to make the case that, you know, it's good for West Virginia. It's good for, you know, saving species proactively and getting species recovered off the list so they're not litigating, you know, for some of the projects he cares about, you know, with um, some of the biggest threats being the fact that so many you know, freshwater mussels and crayfish are in trouble. And so, I mean, it's just, I think the thing with Senator Manchin is like there's been a lot ascribed to motives and to his, um, you know, kind of how he thinks about things. He is one of the most straightforward, like plain spoken, like I'll tell he'll tell you exactly what he's thinking kind of folks I've ever dealt with. And so if you make a good case, you know, he's receptive. Um, if you don't, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to poke holes. I mean, he, he's, he's a governor still. Um, and that's how he thinks, right? He kind of like, he likes bringing people together. He likes hearing opposing viewpoints. And he likes kind of calling the play. And I think, you know, the, I think the, the untold told story, right. Was, you know, how folks from different parts of the economy and different you know, walks of life all had their own roles to play in kind of keeping him in a, a good headspace where this is going to be an absolute home run for West Virginia. And we could also do some, you know, national policy on things that are a little outside of the uh, mountaineer state. Let's talk about some of those, those national policies and the, the, the handful of, of sticks that made it into the final bill the, you mentioned the, the methane fee and there, we should clarify here. We're talking about two different bits on methane. Number one is on public lands specifically that there will be a royalty on methane on public lands, whether it is flared or captured or not, which, whereas right now, companies can waste that methane, don't have to, to pay a royalty on it. That's pretty straightforward. The second part is on all oil and gas infrastructure, basically across the country, that creates penalties uh, when companies start flaring or venting or wasting methane above a certain threshold. I've seen some criticism of that provision saying it carved out too big a loophole for smaller producers and really only ends up affecting about half of the the companies that produce oil and gas in, in the country. Are, are you comfortable with where that provision ended up? Do you think there's some room to strengthen it in the future? I, I do. Look, I mean, this, this is the first time the U.S. Congress has ever put a, any kind of price on a greenhouse gas. Right. I mean, like it's a huge thing, right? I mean, like we, we lost the battle in 2009. We haven't really had a, a legitimate conversation on it since then. Um, I, I mean, the studies I've seen from you know some of our friends is that it, that that more than like slightly more than 50 percent covers like 90 percent of emissions. And so there is that piece. I mean, I think there's there's like, there's always room for improvement in these things. But I think like once we send a market signal that you know waste is no longer going to be acceptable. Um, you know, and then obviously we all know that methane is the most potent, potent of the major greenhouse gases. I mean, I, I do think that it moves the market, it moves investment, you know, pretty quickly. Um, as we're also having a whole bunch of provisions that also reduce demand um, in the bill that complement it. Let's talk talk about environmental justice and equity. There's some money in here. Um, walk us through so where some of that that funding can go, and are there enough gaps, or are there are there gaps remaining that need to be filled? Um, or how, how will the environmental justice and equity funds in here end up moving the needle? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple kind of facets that there's some kind of direct, you know, grant programs, you know, the environmental justice grants, you know, that those $3 billion, there's a bunch of money for brownfields and ports and, you know, kind of individual places that have caused like longstanding injustices and led to, to sacrifice zones. Um, I mean, also, you know, given the kind of potential for swapping out clean, clean energy for, you know, dirty energy, obviously, a lot of the most polluting plants in the country are in, you know, in uh, communities of color. And so, you know, kind of, I think there's a huge environmental justice piece there. Um, and even though, and if you add up that plus the, you know, the green bank, which is going to be heavily targeted at, at lower income communities. And, um, I mean, I, I think that you start adding that all up and, and then also thinking about the way that things like the, you know, the EV, uh, environmental, sorry, the electric vehicle rebates, um, allow like the, for the resale of, you know, used cars and having rebates for that. I mean, like there's a whole bunch of affordability measures in, that aren't really counted in like the 60 billion that they, that they folks have been talking about in the environmental justice space. And it's not nearly enough. Right. It's both historic and it's not nearly enough. I mean, I, I'm impressed that it all uh, at all stuck. I think, you know, we made that a, a top priority when working with Senator Manchin and um, folks in West Virginia to really make the case that these were investments that were important back home. Um, and, you know, and I, and I got to give just incredible credit to you know, folks like Tom Carper. Um, I mean, the EPW title, not to get too technical for folks, but like the, the stuff in the jurisdiction, the Environmental Public Works Committee um, really stuck kind of throughout this process. Um, they got a fairly low allocation to begin. Uh, Senator Carper's, uh, Chairman Carper's uh, staff director, Mary Frances Repco, is just one of the you know, superstars on the Hill, um, really worked with both the parliamentarian and the Senator Manchin to make sure those provisions were set up in a way to kind of survive this gauntlet. And you know, there are plenty of comments along the, the process. But look, I think I think it's a huge first step and it's not enough. And we got to make sure that some of the other provisions don't you know, create new sacrifice zones across the country. Right. And there has been um, I'm sure you've seen the controversy around that um, a number of uh, environmental activists who come from communities of color sort of denouncing the bill. Um, I'm curious what your take is on that. I mean, it seems like from the, by the numbers, this bill is a good thing and will help a lot of people. What do you think about those who are sort of denouncing it? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, communities that have lived with centuries in some cases or decades of, you know, kind of structural racism and environmental racism causing pollution in their communities um, have every right to be absolutely, you know, concerned that there could be additional impacts and at the same time acknowledge that there's a lot of good that's going to make things better. And I think, you know, I, I, as someone who's you know, so deep into it, um, you know, I mean, I think you know, I can say without a doubt, like this was the best deal you're going to get. I mean, like we were on the, you know, on the knife's edge of not getting anything. Um, and you know, if, if those stories were not overblown. <laughs> I mean, having been in those stories, I mean, in those conversations, like they, they were not overblown at all. Um, and at the same time, I think there's got to be greater solidarity across the community that, you know, we're not going to allow these injustices to persist in the 21st century. Um, and so, you know, that gets the questions around siting, that gets the questions around investment, you know, making sure that all the clean energy investments don't just wind up in, you know, along the coasts and, you know, in you know, wealthier communities that are able to take advantage of the tax credits or have utilities that, you know, are able to, you know, rate-based things in ways that, you know, some others aren't. I mean, there's, there's a lot of technical issues around making sure it's equitable kind of implementation of the act. Um, but, you know, like I'm never going to question somebody that's been, you know, living and fighting against, you know, kind of massive public health, kind of devastating public health impacts um, to make sure they don't you know, continue. I want to talk about oil and gas leasing. We've, Kate and I have talked about it a bit on, on the podcast here. And the first time as we were reading through the bill text as it drops again, pretty cold uh, for, for most of us to, to, to be reading this. And we see 
essentially all of the reforms to the oil and gas leasing system that groups like CWP have been advocating for for the last decade, raising royalty rates, getting rid of non-competitive leasing. Uh, there was bonding reform, and then that got pulled by the, by the parliamentarian. Um, but then all of that gets tied to ongoing more leasing that will be required if Interior wants to permit renewable energy product, projects onshore or hold renewable energy lease sales offshore. And the, the minimums there are 60 million acres a year offshore and 2 million acres a year onshore or half of what get, gets nominated if it's less than 4 million acres. What is your take on that trade-off? Is locking in another decade of leasing at the end of the day not that big a deal if most of what has high potential has already been leased or is this potentially setting up a, a, another carbon bomb offshore if there's some new technology or new uh, new deposit of oil that's discovered along the way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's it's, it's always dangerous. I'm an economist by training, so I kind of give you like on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of kind of answer, right? Like the potential is there for it to be disastrous on a carbon or the potential is to be very minimal. Um, and I, I think we, we, we need to be in it to, right, to do that. And I just before I jump to that, I mean, I think your first point on the leasing reform, I mean, you know, we've been working with you guys for years on this. And I think all the work that like Laura did in, with, with the Federation and Tracy and, you know, the, the work that David Willen's been doing and you know, our whole, whole team now and Camilla and everybody. Um, I mean, it, it is remarkable, right? And cause I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I get the kind of the preview drafts kind of behind the scene. You're kind of, you're kind of seeing what, what fell out, right? <laughs> like, yeah. the, like, well, like, you what's know, making it through to the finish right, line. Right, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I think that the bonding reform was disappointing with the parliamentarian as you mentioned. But I think, you know, I'm so heartened that because of the work of so many over so many years that we actually brought the leasing program into the 20th century. I mean, I'm sure we got to the 21st yet, but we at least got, to the, <laughs> we got from the 19th to the 20th century. Um, and, it, you know, just accelerating all these reforms, right, that we've talked about for decades in some cases, right, to actually get them um, on, on paper and the, the mission reductions that have come from that. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, like the other one you, you didn't mention is like the, the, just ending the non-competitive leasing, right? Which has been like one mm-hmm. of the ones that drives me insane, right? Or it's yeah. just, you know, putting out a, a buck 50 and yeah. you get whatever you want. Yeah. And and also just the asymmetry of not allowing groups like us to then compete, right? That's fine. But you know, we could lock up a whole bunch of acres if we were allowed to allowed to bid. So um, I, I'm really, I'm really proud of all that. Now, moving to the, the leasing program. I mean, I still think that the market demand is dropping so precipitously right now. You know, you have massively sale in the in the Gulf. You know, before you know, not as much interest as folks expected. A lot of the interest was actually for nearshore parcels that um, to use for carbon sequestration, right? As opposed to as, as we, we think that's what Exxon's going to do there. They're, yeah. they're going to want to put put carbon back in, yeah. even though the, the the offshore leasing act doesn't actually provide exactly. for that. There's no regulatory regime yet for exactly. putting carbon back onto the ocean. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, you look at like the lease givebacks in, in, in the, in the Arctic, which obviously is heartbreaking that it didn't, you know, kind of make the final cut. Um, you know, you look at, you know, kind of what we're seeing for uh, expressions of interest, um, you know, and, and I, and I do think that that piece that you mentioned is probably going to be the place where um, I think you're probably more in the 50% range than the, mm-hmm. than the 2 million. Acres. Than the 2 million. And, 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 and I've been making the case to some of our friends at interior that the, that, that the denominator of that equation should be leases that are actually like viable, 
right? Like the like nominations, like shouldn't be like in wilderness areas, right? It shouldn't be in places that have already been have withdrawal. So I mean, like, you know, because that critical grouse gonna... habitat was the first yeah, thing that came to mind. Exactly. For me, if, if we're going to be leasing in Wyoming, you're going to have a lot of overlap there. That's right. And and so especially after the court decision, you know, reversing the, the Trump's actions on, on some of the priority habitat areas there. I mean, like, and so like, if, if it really is limited to areas that are, are viable, you know, that 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 are also not prohibited, right? I mean, my guess is that that won't be more than you know, it won't be multiple million acres a year that meet that test, and then half of that, right? So, I, I think that's one place. Um, I also think that you know the the department has done an incredible leadership again under Lauren and 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 Tracy's leadership under Secretary Hollins, you know, just great direction of um of actually doing like real EISs on the front end to make sure that you know folks understand the the trade-offs and the consequences and really doing a carbon accounting and you know, some social cost of carbon accounting as well. And so like you put all that together in the regulatory regime, I just I, I think the number of companies that are going to want to have massive outlays of cash with these new prices combined with these new kind of lease lease, lease structures and the and the and the risk. I mean, you know, my good friend Jesse Jenkins at Princeton did a lot of modeling on on what like oil demand looks like at the end of this bill. And it's like it's down you know, 13, 15%. And so I don't know if I want to make an investment. It's not going to see any oil until 2030 at the earliest when we're probably going to be at 50, 60% electric vehicles, if not more by then. Right. I mean, like, you know, maybe it's an export play, but like it's not, the economics are not in their favor right now. And, and the stuff that's already been leased are leased at much more favorable terms than exactly. they get going forward. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you, so you put that all together and look, and, the, and I think it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, we all live this, but like there's a difference between offering a lease compared to like an actual like executed lease that's actually being developed and all the steps that can go wrong in between that. And, and actually getting oil yeah, out of the yeah. ground. So yeah. I, I think, I think we gotta be vigilant and I think we gotta make sure that we, you know, set conditions to you know, minimize damage. And I want to talk about connectivity and corridors and you know, critical habitat areas. I mean, all I'm making sure that, you know, we're really, really you know, limiting kind of the places that, that could potentially be impacted. And I want a lot more community input. I mean, I, I do think that you know, both Republican and Democratic administrations over years have not had enough community input on where like these sales are even offered in the first place. So I think there's a, a big opportunity to kind of do right by communities that have been silenced for a long time. Colin, I feel like what I am hearing you say in a lot of these answers is that actually a lot of how this plays out will depend on the implementation. Um, what are you guys at NWF doing um, regarding implementation at this point? Or what do you, what do you have plans to sort of work on um, as all this money um, and funding starts to roll out? Yeah. I mean, you know us, I mean, we, it never ends. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, like this, this, the passage was a moment for 15 minutes of celebration and then get to work, you know, bothering our friends in the administration about how we want to see different things implemented and prioritized. And so, you know, I mean, our, we're going to, you're going to see us in a couple different places I and mean, you'll see us doing a lot with the administration itself around implementation kind of getting money out the door, making sure that, you know, guidance documents, making sure that, you know, that, you know, NOFAs and all the different chronic requests for proposals, like those are all, you know, structured, right. And then you're going to see us at the other extreme under the leadership of Mustafa, Santiago Ali, and like the great kind of the EJ dream team that, that he's built, um, helping communities access resources. Um, and again, this isn't to drive priorities from the national level. It makes you like that community led investments are actually getting resourced with these different dollars. And, you know, we've had, you know, um, some ability to support local communities with the infrastructure act dollars, because I think that there's, you know, again, like things like the you know, clean water revolving fund dollars. I mean, there's a lot of these programs that are, are funneled through state, you know, state programs that you know, probably aren't set up particularly equitably. So trying to like deal with that. And then like, the big thing here is that, I mean, you need, you need a PhD in tax accounting to understand how some of the provisions work on the incentive side. And so how do you make those digestible for folks? How do you make sure that in you know, local school districts, I mean, the city of Jackson right now is underwater because there's, you know, massive, no, under, sorry, underwater advisory because there's been massive, you know, issues with infrastructure there. I mean, how do you make sure these dollars wind up in places 
that you know traditionally haven't had the capacity um, or the access to capital to uh, to do these bigger projects. And so, you know, how do you leverage resources? How do you make sure that banking institutions are set up? You know, and this is and there's a lot of potential, but it's a lot of money, and there's a lot of places that just haven't had um, access to anything like this in in history. And so, you know, let's make sure we make the most of it. Let's move on to the next part because part of the the top line on this bill was this is going to happen through reconciliation and then there is going to be a separate bill on permitting reform that Senator Manchin is very excited about. He released a broad kind of bullet point outline. There was a leaked draft of actual bill text that came out of API, the American Petroleum Institute, but so far we haven't seen any actual final bill text that was going to be introduced. We don't know anything on timing there. What is your thinking here regarding permitting? And is there anything that you could think uh, emerging from this process that is something uh, NWF could end up supporting? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I mean, I I think the political path to passage is actually pretty fraught. Um, I think it's just incredibly complicated, right? I mean, I think you have, you know, House Democrats raising concerns, including, you know, folks like Chairman Grijalva and, 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 you know, and and Congressman Hoffman and others, other just giants in the, in our space. Um, You know, I think you got, you got Senate Republicans that are saying we're not interested in helping on this. Um, And so far, I mean, that could change, but that's been the posture so far. Um, Certainly before election day. Yeah, exactly. And and so how that intersects then at that point, but like the continuing resolution to fund the government, and like there's just like there's like sequencing issues um, that I think are, are kind of are kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're trying not to speculate yet because you know the the drafts that we've seen are evolving a lot, um, and you know I, we don't know what they're going to take up yet. And so I mean, I think you know I think you know, we've been of the mindset for a long time that you know that there has to be a way to be both rigorous and inclusive and community input and good science and more efficient, um, that it shouldn't be an either or, um, you know, when you talk about, you know, a decade for you know, clean energy transmission lines, when you talk about, you know, the time it takes for offshore wind power permitting, you know, off the East coast, I mean, like, you know, we're going to need to figure out ways to both have efficient, efficient processes that are inclusive and, and, you know, kind of achieve the clean energy future at a, at a speed that matches the, the kind of the scale of the change that we need. And at the same time, you know, we don't want to make, we want to make sure that there aren't, adverse imp- impacts on, on local communities that are, are trying to make sure their voices are heard during the during the review process um, for some of the fossil incentives. So you know, I think, I mean, my goal is making sure that, you know, all permitting processes are inclusive and science driven and to respect the fact that, you know, black and Hispanic and indigenous and frontline communities have suffered the brunt of environmental health impacts of past projects um, and continue to, and in that any reforms don't kind of create perpetual injustices. Um, but I, I just think until we start seeing text, I think, you know, I think right now it's just, it's, it's hard. It's easy to fear the worst because that's, that's the history um, and, and, and understandably so. Um, and I also think that, you know, if it is going to be largely democratic led, I think we should, um, you know, continue to push some of our friends to make sure it's as um, responsible as, as humanly can be. Because otherwise you're looking at a path that somehow gets 10 plus Republicans in the Senate and, an unknown number of Republicans in the House, 20, 30, 40, maybe, depending on on what happens with the Progressive Caucus, right? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, I think like on the infrastructure package, right, which I would argue is an easier vote for some of the House Republicans, there's only 12 or 13 of them, and most of them aren't coming, most of them aren't coming back. And so, right, and so, like, if, if the 
progressive caucus or a big chunk of you know, house natural resources or you know some of the cbc or chc decide to say they're going to you know vote in a block i mean you could have 30 40 50 no votes and I, I just i don't think there's that many republican yes votes to make up the difference at this point you know and i, and I think like we just got to make sure that like whatever is centers people and you know from my, my point of view it also centers wildlife right but like i think that's the that's the key um and i, and I like and i just think there's like time is short too. I mean, like the, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a compressed schedule and they're going to be back in the Senate next week or not even next, I guess a week and a half from now. Um, they're only in for four weeks at that point, then they're off through the election and then it's lame duck. And depending on what happened in November, like, you know, depending on the, I mean, it's just, it's just a lot. And so, you know, I, I think if it's attached to a must pass vehicle, like maybe, but we'll just have to stay vigilant. Well, and that's where Manchin was saying uh, we're going to attach this to a continuing resolution to keep the government running or I will shut down the government. Uh, does, from your interactions with the, the senator and his staff, do you think he would actually do that or or do you think that that's a bit of bluster at this point? I mean, he doesn't really bluff, right? Like, it's, if, you, if you follow his, like, you know, kind of what he says publicly and what he ends up doing, I mean, they're very consistent. Like, they, he, he can he can be convinced, right? You can kind of get new information. Um, usually that's good. Um, but the, um, I, so I, I think the question is, like, what form does it take, though, right? Because, you know, and, and I think about, like, his he, he had some incredible leadership a few years ago when he was trying to extend a bunch of minor pensions, Right. And he basically had, you know, he had a similar threat. Um, you know, he ended up was able to kind of incorporate that. And I think it was the 2019 omnibus or maybe the 2021. Um, and so the, there are examples of, of him, you know, using his leverage like many senators do at different times. Uh, I think the question just becomes like, are the votes there? Is it is, is there is there additional negotiation or not? Like, is it already you know fully baked and is what it is? Or is there you know things that could be done? Um, to make sure, you know, communities aren't, aren't left behind and there's no you know, adverse impacts on some of the timelines and some of the other things that are being discussed. So, you know, I, I, I like, I mean, my, my advice to everybody is like, listen to what he actually says and don't try to interpret anything, like take it literally <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then go from there. And you'll be, you'll don't, be right don't, don't read the, the tea leaves when he's just laying it all out for you. Yes. I mean, if you look, I mean, look, I mean, look at the final bill, right? I mean, like the concerns you raise on EV and direct pay and things like that. I mean, like, you know, he found solutions on all of them, um, but he was very consistent from beginning to end around how he addressed the concerns that he had. Going forward, this is obviously a, a huge win for President Biden, and we have seen a, a a rapid increase in his approval ratings in the wake of this. Uh, if you've got the president's ear, and you can say, Mr. President, uh, this is a huge win. The American people recognize that. How do you keep riding the wave? What's next? I mean, so the next big opportunity, and you, you all know I've been talking about this for years, is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. <laughs> like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's $14 billion over 10 years. It's the first time that tribes will have actual base funding for wildlife programs on, on tribal lands. Um, you know, it's dedicated funding for the implementation of state wildlife action plans. It's got bipartisan support. So, I mean, that's, you know, it, it's, it's of the same scale as the Great American Outdoors Act. I mean, it's actually slightly bigger in terms of dollars. So, um, you know, when you go oh, in perpetuity, just given the given that it's perpetual funding and it's got you know, 16 Senate Republicans on it, which is a going to get you well over the magic 10. So, I mean, I think I think for legislatively, I think that's the next thing that's left. I think there's opportunities in water resources development acts, there's some things in appropriations. And then you're into the next farm bill. Obviously, we got a huge plus up with a 21 billion for for uh, kind of climate smart agriculture, which you know sets that. So there's a whole bunch of like legislative things that are still in play. I mean, recovering is kind of the one that's in this you know this this next work period. But then I think it is I think it is you know turning to the agencies, right? And like it's it's actually having 
you know, letting, letting, you know, just great work happen in that interior and DOE and EPA, um, you know, making sure again, you know, using sound science and best available, you know, economics and technology and everything else. But, um, you know, I think there has been this kind of hesitancy. Um, and you know, I think there's some places where we've fallen a little behind because of that. Um, and understandably so. I mean, they don't want to upset the apple cars are trying to do big legislative things. But I, I do think that, you know, it could be a, a pivot to the administration. But I also think like we shouldn't give up on Congress. You know, I mean, like, I mean, like the likelihood of it staying Democratic is higher today than it has been any time in the last, you know, six months. Um, at least one chamber, if not potentially both even, which wasn't even a thinkable sentence, you know, six weeks ago. Um, and and there's, he's proven an ability to do bipartisan things at a rate that no president's been able to do since Johnson. And so, you know, I, just, I, I think... This is a presidency that's, you know, went from being anemic by some people's, you know, kind of critique on it to being incredibly legislatively muscular, um, you know, within you know, two months of each other. And it's, it's an amazing thing that I think you should just keep the momentum going. So, so it's both an, a, a need for executive beast mode, but also keep your eye on lame duck because that could get interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's opportunities the next four weeks um, as well. And I mean, it's similar like the, the, the Great American Order, sorry, the Recovering Workers Wildlife that could pass sort of like the burn pit legislation did, right? It could be a couple of days of vote and it's pretty, pretty unanimous. And there it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it could also be attached to something else. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, continue to, you know, find those bipartisan sweet spots that, that can you know, meet the 60 vote cloture threshold. Um, and at the same time, you know, let the agencies fulfill their statutory responsibilities. Colin O'Mara, president of the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you so much. Good. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Kate. Today's good news segment is about America's favorite apex predator, Yellowstone wolves. The good news is that the state of Montana chose to reinstate a cap on the number of Yellowstone area wolves that hunters and trappers can kill, abandoning an approach that led to the slaughter of 21 Yellowstone wolves last season. The change took place after locals and park officials showed up in force to a state Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting to voice their support for the wolves. The new cap is six, down from the 10 originally proposed by the commission earlier this year. It's still more than the two allowed historically, but it's certainly better than the free-for-all that occurred last year. And that is it for today's episode. If you have any comments or questions, you know where to send them, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And hey, take five minutes to fill out our listener survey, will you? We will keep it open until Labor Day. There is a link in the show notes. After that, who knows, this could turn into a Bachelor episode recap podcast. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see what happens. Thanks so much to Colin O'Mara for showing us how the proverbial sausage gets made in Washington, D.C. And thanks to you for listening to The Landscape. Landscape.